Welcome to the HSCT Warriors Podcast, bringing voice to the journeys of HSCT Warriors worldwide. I'm Dr. Jen Stansberry Koenig, or Zen Jen, and so grateful to share this story with you. As we continue to grow the HSCT Warrior community, illuminate the invisibilities of autoimmune disease, recognize the possibilities of a future free from disease progression, connect through our shared experiences, and advocate for an inclusive society. We're so glad you've joined us. So welcome, Dr. Burt. It's such a pleasure and a joy always to connect with you, but especially to now share share you with our, our listeners and our audience of, of the HSCT Warriors podcast. Welcome. Okay, thank you so much for having me on. For sure. I've been devouring your latest book, Everyday Miracles, Curing Multiple Sclerosis, Scleroderma, and Autoimmune Diseases by hematopoietic stem cell transplant, mostly um, just because it is such a page turner and engaging to read. And and in my mind, it's why we're here today to help others learn the importance of the text and knowing about HSCT for autoimmune diseases so that they can consider it as an option for treatment. But I'm so eager to talk with you and hear your side of the story and even what inspired you to go down the path of figuring out how to use HSCT for autoimmune diseases. Well, thank you. Um, kind of let me predate that by saying why I wrote this book. And the reason I did is I just felt there was so much misinformation out there in all fields, in the medical professional field and by the lay public. And um, I had been working in this area for since I had the idea 35 years ago, I've been publishing medical papers and giving talks and doing medical textbooks, and uh, yet there, the confusion and confusion in the media as well mm. that uh, you know it was kind of like made the message of these these advances to be uh, kind of drowned out. So I thought it was very important to write an updated medical textbook, which came out in November of 2021. It's 686 pages. That can also be bought online by Amazon, but it's a bit more expensive because it's a medical textbook, and those things do tend to run a much higher price. And a compilation yeah. of so many great authors in the field. Yeah, and so that included 140 uh, professors, associate professors from around the world. So it was an attempt to uh, update the medical professional and research community on um, why this is being done on the different type of stem cells, the different regulations involved in the results and, and indications. Um, and um, that was an attempt to help people, professional people, to better understand it and to relieve some of the confusion that's been sown out there. But I also wanted to empower the patients and write a lay book that a non-professional would understand and would enjoy reading um, it for, to help them clear up a lot of the misunderstanding that exists. Um, and, you know, that arises you know, for many reasons, but what I found in my career is, uh, of course, uh, information and knowledge is good, 
but limited information and limited knowledge is dangerous. And uh, unfortunately, in our media era of five-second sound bites, that by definition is limited information. So that's why I wanted to uh, do those uh, two textbooks as well as uh, take the opportunity to get 12 new publications out in the medical literature. But, you know, the publications by themselves in medical literature just weren't informing people or, or changing the field. So uh, the one, the medical textbook was for professionals in the field and the uh, lay book is for patients to know and to understand, for them to be aware and for them to be able to make a decision that they feel is, is best for them. I mean, the whole idea that I, and I bring this out in my book, and behind the Western foundation of law and our legal system is consent. And uh, to be properly consented, you need as much information as possible. Mm. So I wanted to, to try to get that out to the lay person um, as to how this field was developed. And uh, the way I did it was kind of in profiles of courage of individual patients because, you know, my patients came from everywhere all around the world, not just within America. Um, Actually, most of my patients did not come from the area around where I was doing transplants. And, you know, these are people who just weren't accepting the status quo of continued uh, drug-modifying therapy that slowed their disease but did not really reverse it. And, um, you know, they weren't accepting that answer. Uh, and so there was a lot of courage on those patients and determination and the kind of neat thing about transplant is you do spend, the, you know, three weeks with a patient uh, in the hospital going through the procedure so you get to know them mm. as, as well as when they first come to you and during follow-up. And each patient's story is remarkable. The hardest part for me was, you know, that there are so many patients that could have been in the book. And, um, you know, unfortunately, you do have to have a limit to the book. The publishing house wanted only 50,000 words. <laughs> Right. I was able to get it up to 70,300 words before they put the brakes on me because, as they said, uh, you know, people won't read uh, books longer than that. So, uh, but it, it was able to include, uh, you know, the stories of 54 patients um, and, you know, interspersed within the development of the field for five different autoimmune diseases. The, you know, one that the biggest section has to do with multiple sclerosis, and the second biggest section is systemic sclerosis or scleroderma because I had completed uh, the world's first uh, randomized trials in those studies showing marked superiority for transplant. But also I wanted to explain to patients that, you know, there's a big misunderstanding out there by everybody virtually that it's the stem cells and the stem cells are therapeutic mm. and they are not. They do not regenerate neurons or all the dendrocytes or repair myelin. Uh, they're just a supportive blood product uh, that the efficacy and the toxicity arises from the conditioning regimen and, and efficacy also arises from patient selection predominantly. Those are the uh, the main things that determine the outcome of this treatment. And once you perfect that, you can have these remarkable results. And one of the things I found in, in writing this book is, you know, I just started randomly contacting patients, some of whom, you know, had the transplant 15, 20 years ago. And 
just on randomly calling people, I was amazed how everybody wanted to be included and um, how the people I called were still doing very well Mm. that far out from transplant because obviously we weren't seeing them anymore. You know, why should they pay the expense to fly to where I am to be, and then go through those procedures, you know, if they got better and stay better didn't, and didn't need any medications, it's good for them to finally be free of the, uh, the ball and chains or tether of the medical system. And so just talking to them, I realized, my gosh, this is really what I wanted to achieve when I first had this idea over 35 years ago. And so that was very rewarding. It also made me realize that somewhere you know, I I need to really find the time or set aside the time to write long-term follow-up on these patients. Because when I first, you know, developed this or approached people about doing this, uh, you know, the, the medical community just thought it was not a good idea. And uh, now I think with the results that have been published, they're somewhat gradually coming to realize the efficacy of this therapy and the advantage of it. Uh, but there's still, I think, this resistance, oh, well, they're all going to relapse. But uh, Which is interesting because when you do drug trials, they give one to two-year follow-up and that's kind of it. And, and that's enough. And you're kind of dependent on the drug and they're not looking at reversing neurologic disability or getting you free of the medical system. And so... Um, you know, a, a publication showing those long-term outcomes would be would be terrific. Now, I put the caveat out there that, you know, I was just randomly calling people. I didn't do a systematic sure. uh, analysis to get the exact percentages. But generally, if a patient relapses, they will recontact me. And after, um, you know, we find that relapses after five years is very unusual. Nobody tends to recontact, with the exception of one case I had a relapse at uh, 10 or 11 years. But most Mostly, if you don't relapse within the first uh, three three years and occasionally out to five years, uh, tend not to relapse. And with this particular regimen I use, uh, you know, about 75% of people uh, don't seem to relapse with the follow-up we have on them and uh, return to to a healthy, drug-free uh, life without evidence of any new MS activity. Which is why so, more people need to know about it. Yes, it is. And um, so I, I explain in the book why I think it's it's been what's retarded this field, what's kept it from going forward. And I mean, I mean, obviously, it should move forward because there's no license, there's no money, there's no patent for me for developing this. Other people can do it, but they're not doing it. And so I kind of discuss why I think that is in the last chapter and it's not any type of you know malevolence by any one or, or group of people that have held the field back it's more kind of just a mindset and a misunderstanding in the way our medical system has been set up and so you know i want to you know at the end of the book you can read that it, sh- it, it should you should find that interesting but i break it down into risk benefit that is the concept of risk benefit uh uh, I do. I don't directly mention this in the book, but you know, there's kind of this paternalistic uh, attitude that uh, the doctor can assess your risk for you, or somebody uh, like a uh, ethicist or your uh, insurance company or 
uh, somebody sitting in their office can assess it for you. And that's absolutely not correct. They're not in your shoes. They don't know what you're suffering. They don't feel it. You know, it's the patient, individual patient, that should always have the right to determine the risk-benefit of what they're doing, provided they're properly informed of of all the risks. And um, and not the government, not some insurance company, not some bureaucrat sitting in their office. Uh, uh, it, you know, that is the foundation of Western law. It's consent. It's your, that's the difference, uh, and I bring that out in the book, the difference between a gift and stealing is only consent. Mm. The difference between making love and rape is consent. And the difference between a physician or a surgeon when they give a medication or do an operation, uh, the difference between them assaulting the patient and treating them medically is consent. Consent is the key uh, to, to what to what we do, and that consent needs to come from the patient who receives that treatment or interacts with that system, not from some independent body uh, that assumes this paternalistic or colonialistic Mm. attitude towards the person. And I, you know, uh, even bring out a story in there at the Vatican where I gave a talk and they had this ethicist from a prestigious American university talk, and he was very critical of this, got an argument with one of my patients there. And so the patient finally said, why don't you believe me? Why don't you believe these publications? And he said, well, he just doesn't agree with the risk-benefit of it. And I thought to myself, what the ethicist, and this is a, quote, ethicist, what he's missing is the concept of consent. That is the individual patient who is suffering this to make their own decision. Because once you're in those shoes, things look very different than when you yourself aren't forced to walk that path and look at your life only further declining despite uh, all the suffering and expenses and treatment you're getting. So I think, you know, kind of from a societal perspective, we need to get back to this concept of consent of the individual. And so that was number one, risk, benefit. Number uh, two is kind of homelessness that, you know, I I was not trained as a neurologist or a gastroenterologist or, or a rheumatologist yet. I developed this therapy for those diseases. <clears throat> and in fact, there is no National Institutes of Autoimmune Diseases. Uh, there are no centers around the world or around America that are an institute of autoimmune disease that I'm aware of. There's certainly no federal funding for that, unlike a National Cancer Institute or uh, at the NIH or uh, you know cancer centers around the country funded by the NIH. And so autoimmune disease are orphaned off into all these different uh, divisions and departments and you know, I think that's kind of somewhat retarded the development of this field. If there were institutes of autoimmune disease within which there are divisions of cellular therapy, hematopoietic stem cell transplant, as well as other cellular therapies that are being developed for these diseases, I think would help, you know, accelerate uh, advances in the field. Uh, because as it would stand, you know, subspecialists that spent their career or life working in developing um, thinking about a given autoimmune disease such as scleroderma or MS, they they don't understand transplant, which 
came out of hematology and they view it as all one kind of treatment and they're hesitant to refer their patients to it. Um, you know, they're in a different fiefdom or a different silo and uh, transplanters, unfortunately, are in, also in a different silo, which is transplanting leukemias. And so they're used to thinking of these aggressive myeloblative regimens. And, you know, if you make that transition like I did, where you're in between those two silos, you can focus <clears throat> on safer non-myeloblative regimens and and why that is the rationale for, for what we need to do for transplant. So a myeloblative regimen is a cancer regimen that totally destroys the bone marrow that makes all the cells in the blood, your immune cells, but also your red blood cells and platelets. And of course, if you can't do that, you won't live. And you have to give those stem cells back that you collect from the patient or you're not going to recover. Non-myeloblative means you target only the immune cells. You do end up suppressing the bone marrow, but it doesn't kill it. It'll recover on its own. You don't have to give the stem cells. It's just a supportive blood product <clears throat> that hastens your recovery. And so it's a prudent thing to do, but it's not necessary. And so you can make your regimen safer uh, without mucositis that you get with cancer regimens, without injury or minimal risk to other organ systems, and just focusing in on the immune compartment to knock it down, then allow it to rapidly regenerate or reset with what appears in a majority of patients. If you get the regimen right and patient selection right, can be very long-term uh, remissions that really change the natural history of these, this disease. Now, in my medical publications and talks, I never use the word cure, yet in the late book on the title, mm -hmm. I put cure because I want pe to catch people's eyes, but I put the caveat in the book that, you know, we have these very long-term remissions now, sometimes out to 20 years, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, and the majority with the right regimen, with the right selection of patients do not seem uh that have have gotten better stayed better and haven't relapsed but you know but there is no definition for a cure for these diseases because nobody ever had that luxury to mm, define it so right. you know we can't say that we can say it's changed the natural history and once you're thinking 10 15 20 years with no evidence of recurrence and and you got better and stayed better you know perhaps we have found the right door that uh, where you can start thinking in those terms or at least apply this treatment for these diseases uh, that are having you know a, a more aggressive course so um well and so on that note what do you think needs to change in order for more physicians to as you say in your book treat the patient from a more holistic perspective or at least, like, even in medical schools, encourage f the physicians to be working more transdisciplinarily, <laughs> if that's a word, um, to just connect outside of their subspecialties and begin understanding that these approaches to treatment have such potential. Yeah, well, you know, all physicians want the best for their patient, but they're trained in certain ways. And it's kind of, you know you get busy in your life and you get down in one type of silo and it's it's hard it's to the way we've always done it yeah it's hard to see things outside of that and so it's kind of a system itself and so i bring that up in the other two things that i think are hindering this field and uh one of them i call eyes wide closed mm -hmm. and that's where you know you're trained a certain way, and I'm all for education and information. I've spent my life involved in that and also constantly learning. And 
developing these new treatments and then learning from my patients how to perfect it and refine it from, you know, the results of how they're doing. But um, what I wouldn't think I'd bring out there is like when I was in medical school and graduated from medical school and at the ceremony for the graduating class, the speaker congratulated us on our accomplishment. It was definitely a lot of hard work and uh, sacrifice, but uh, he said half of what we taught you is wrong. We just don't know which half. And to me, that was like an eye-opener because in medical school, there's so much to learn. You just are kind of force-fed and you memorize, memorize, memorize. But a lot of these, quote, memorized facts actually are wrong and misdirect you. And so, you know, you're not necessarily taught to think independently. Uh, and that's something that you always have to kind of maintain in yourself to question and think, and that's really what science is. Science should never be used to bully or intimidate or silence anyone. It should be used to question and rethink what you're doing. And that's where I bring out how I was taught at the NIH, working in a lab, talking with the lab chief, that research is repeating the search. It's researching. Mm, all right. <laughs> Trying to prove that what you found is valid over so you, and over and over. Right. And so part of this is, <clears throat> you know, minds kind of get get uh, get locked in certain paths instead of rethinking. And then when you come from the outside of a field, uh, you're then challenging the elites in that field. Mm. They're going to be naturally skeptical because you don't have their pedigree. Uh, so I think that's, you know, kind of a resistance that, that you come up to. And, you know, as I said Virchow, a quote from Virchow, you know, the, founding, the founder of uh, pathology, uh, you know, he said a, a good doctor treats the disease, a great doctor treats the patient. Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of truth to that, but uh, medicine has become so subspecialized with so much knowledge in a given one area, you end up really uh, focused in one area. And um, so I think when you're you're jumping across those silos or areas there's you're given an extra high bar to uh to leap over um and and that's kind of i think probably one of the things that has, have held this back and i think just education um is is one of the ways to help come around that and not just educating the medical community but educating patients right how to ask the questions yeah, it's their life. It's their disease. It's they're the ones suffering through this. They're the ones asked to find the resources to deal with this. So, um, you know, they're, they're the most important who need to be informed. And that's why I want to get this uh, laid book out there. And then the final, of course, I call financial toxicity. And what that is, is that as physicians, we're never taught the cost or price of something for the patient, whether they're paying or insurance is paying or society is paying. And I think that has allowed just medical costs to far exceed inflation all the time. And, um, you know, the danger with that, we should, you know, there, we should understand uh, the cost effectiveness of therapies. That is the cost of this therapy compared to another and the benefit for the patient um, and make the patient, you know, aware 
but those publications were just not taught that. And unfortunately, this age, more and more physicians are just becoming employees of large institutions, hospitals, mm. whatever. And they're pushed to generate uh, billing revenue, RVUs, and at the end of the year, they get a bonus for the more they bill. Well, that's not really what medicine should be. And, um, you know, uh, if if your patient doesn't have financial security, they don't have medical or psychological security either. So physicians need to be independent professionals who can protect protect and advise their patients through the healthcare field because medicine is a profession but healthcare is a business and uh, much like a lawyer protects their client and if a lawyer is uh, actually an employee of the judge or the prosecuting district attorney there's no way there'd be such a conflict of interest that he could protect his patient so physicians need to be independent professionals not employees and then focus not just and be taught not just the best uh, medical uh, care but uh, also protecting the financial interests of their patients because i explained how transplant is so cost effective mm. compared to these right. drugs and i actually show in the ms chapter how all these ms drugs are about a hundred thousand dollars a year and uh which is what a non-myeloblative transplant is and then you become the majority become free of drugs long term so it's a tremendous cost savings uh for the patient and for society yet it doesn't take off and i think one of the things that would be good is you know we know you need to do a phase one phase two phase three trial phase three being randomized but then it kind of stops there what we need to do after that is have publications and cost effectiveness comparing different uh uh therapies that are effective for a disease uh not in any way to ever say you'd want to give the cheapest to anyone no you don't want to do that you want to give the best cost effective therapy to a patient it's like if you take your car into someone to fix it up and it just needs a tune-up and you come back and they put new tires on they put new brakes on that you didn't need they put in a new hydraulic system and in the tune-up they put in spark plugs that were built in italy for lamborghinis and cost an incredible amount of money and they hand you the bill you're going to say no i'm not paying for that and you know but that's what's going on in medicine and in fact you're getting billed by physicians who have no idea what those bills are and uh th that is something that our system needs to tweak because as i bring out in the end what you know how to how to medicine has become so complex and so invested in itself it's hard to change it or, or hard to think about a a uh, constructive way to bring about change uh, but and in fact you know i bring out maybe as a society we could focus on four things that it should be you know advanced affordable accountable and all inclusive i call that the four a's those goals however can compete against each other mm. such that if it's all inclusive uh, you may not get the most advanced and best care because no matter whether you're dealing with the government or insurance company, there's not unlimited resources. But if we start there and then we figure out how to achieve that, the way to achieve that, put checks and balances on each of those. And one of the checks and balances that is missing is on cost effectiveness. That is the benefit versus cost of the treatment. And if 
those were required to be published out there and made available to patients and physicians. And the physician was an independent entity, not pushed to bill for some big mm. institution, getting a bonus as they achieve it or being uh, penalized if they don't, but focused on their patients. And the reward is, you know, patients will spread by word of mouth if you're doing the right thing for them, and then you'll you know, get more patients and be more successful. But if if we incorporated that in the training and in the publication process, if large journals like New England Journal and JAMA and Lancet in the medical field were forced to publish cost-effective analysis, uh, it would, uh, you know, I think help put a check and balance on these runaway medical expenses uh, um, that are going on in the medical system. Um, so those are kind of the, the four things that I've brought out at the end of the book that I think could help change what is holding this this field back. And, um, uh, you know, because a lot of people say, well, it's the FDA or it's a pharmaceutical or a company or whatever. No, it's not really that. It's the structure of medicine itself that needs to be tweaked and improved. And a lot of that is obviously beyond my ability or authority to do that uh, but i could bring that in the book so that other people can start thinking about it as well as you know the, one of the reasons i had to bring that out is at the end of talking about the results of these five diseases and how patients are doing you know one of the big questions that come to the reader well if this is true why isn't everybody doing this? What's going on? So, right. I, you know, I, they could say, well, this is just science fiction. You wrote a good science fiction book. and uh, But that's these are the real results. And so that's why I had to explain that last chapter, why I think this is being held back. And it's certainly not anything intentional by any one group, but it's the way our system has ended up being structured and uh, now broken. Is, is marching forward, kind of trampling over the individual patient themselves and that needs to be uh, to be tweaked and i hope it is uh, my role in all of this is just to get the information out there after showing how successful this can be there are risks with it definitely are patients have died and i bring that out in the book uh, and that's also why i argue for these non-myeloblative regimens mm. they're less risky they're safer and so i kind of looking back at the field and where it's going and it's never where i started it but it's never where i wanted to go where niaid is pushing these myeloblative regimens which are more dangerous right. more risky more toxic and they're not shown to be any better than a non-myeloblative and they don't the rationale you can make a non-myeloblative even more immune suppressive than a myeloblative so that there's no rationale to do it but it's it's moving forward doing that and they're twice as expensive as non-myeloblative transplants and uh um, twice as toxic it seems and and they're just more potentially dangerous so it's like this this field and this field i'm the one arguing you know when i first started people thought it was too dangerous now i'm the one here saying no the way it's going forward is too dangerous this is how it should be done yet uh you know people don't seem to listen so i thought the best way is to inform the patients and that was the goal of this book so the patients have knowledge and uh, can help to change uh, the, what is going on in the field of medicine Education uh, because, is key. Yeah. So I've kind of come to the point, you know, I've done all I can do. Uh, if this doesn't succeed in uh, opening eyes and changing things, I don't know what will anymore. 
So, uh, but, you know, that was my goal to get a major medical textbook out and get the playbook out because doing these medical publications, giving talks to medical societies wasn't doing it. And there was tremendous misinformation just generated out there, uh, which, you know, when you actually do it and you know what's going on, it just causes you to step back and raise your eyebrow. And that information came from every direction, misinformation, uh, in, including media and, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, physicians and, um, uh, you know, sometimes uh, patients themselves. So I thought right. it was best to to get this out there so people understand it and help clear up uh, misdirection that's just been put out there with people who I don't think they mean that. But again, limited information is dangerous because you, you, you come to conclusions and directions that are not correct. And uh, that's part of the reason I started this podcast so that people could begin to better trust the information they were finding in those Facebook groups or online, right? It's tough to know who's behind that comment. And the comment is one sentence long. And, and so maybe hearing people's stories, maybe hearing people's journeys spoken from their own voice, right? might right. help people find some sense of trust in what they're hearing and learning. And that maybe in hearing from 90 plus individuals that I've interviewed, and that every story is indeed unique, as you mentioned, right, that maybe we find some commonality, and maybe we find strategies to help with that self advocacy, which is so difficult for so many people, especially when they're stressed because they're facing an insurance appeal or stressed because they're changing medicine and it doesn't seem to be working and stressed because they just don't know what to do next. So I think your book is really going to help with all of those things spoken from the professional standpoint that hopefully people can trust your voice. I hope it does help and um, that it, you know, has uh, not just helped individual patients, but helps in some way to modify this bureaucracy of medicine Mm. to refocus it back to the patient in front of you. Because ultimately, if you're not helping that patient in front of you, you're failing. And uh, that needs to to be what everything comes back to. You're just the best doctor I know. (laughs) And I appreciate you stating that so articulately and sharing so much with us in this brief time we have together. I do want to acknowledge that we were scheduled for just a half an hour and we're past that now. We also have time set aside Friday that we can either continue through this conversation if you have the time now or reconnect again Friday to tackle some of the other questions I have for you. Let's let's go on Friday so um, people have a little uh, time yeah. to digest what was said here. Right. No, this is this is great. I think it's a great intro to why they need to read the book. And then I'm curious about your next steps and research and all of that. So good. Well, let's take that up on Friday then. But I really, you know, everybody that's read the book that has talked to me has really enjoyed it. And I think what makes it are the journeys of each patient. And I want to reemphasize, because I'm trained as a physician, Mm. I'm confidentiality, never to release 
medical information on anybody, and you shouldn't if your patient's going to trust you. I, right. Each patient I contacted, I emphasized it's their choice. They don't need to do this, no application to me, and that I co-developed it with each patient who then um, had an opportunity to read what was written to make sure they're comfortable and okay with it. And I gave, I removed all last names and gave every patient the option of a pseudo first name, or they could if they wanted to use their real first name. And then I say at the beginning of the book that I will, you know, never confirm, deny, or add anything more to what's in each patient's story, that that is a patient's story and that is their right to elaborate on more or to come forward or not as however they choose. But each patient signed written uh, consent and was aware of what was written and uh, uh, okayed it and helped in the development of the story. So um, I think that's very, you know, important to always uh, maintain that confidence and uh, trust in privacy with your patients. But that's how I was able to do it, to get those stories out there. And what's really a Profiles of Courage. And matter of fact, I almost called this Profiles mm. in Courage. But, you know, John Kennedy wrote a book called Profiles in Courage that I had read at a young age. And so I didn't want to copy that title. And the title I chose, it was actually Kate, my nurse, who suggested this title because Everyday Miracles, because she said a patient called her one time and she was talking to the patient. And the patient said to Kate, what is, what is it like working with Dr. Burton? Before she answered the patient said, I bet it's like watching Everyday Miracles. Mm. And so, you know, Kate told me, use that as the title and uh, that's what I uh, that's how it ended up being titled Everyday Miracles I'm so grateful for Kate and her support of you and your work over the years oh me too oh, she's yeah. just been a phenomenal support yeah. too many times that you feel like you're in the uh, UFC octagon and uh, you know just to have some support in your corner is, a, is uh, such a godsend well, especially for you to be so isolated in everything you were doing and to work for a decade and be submitting publications and keep getting turned down. I don't know how you kept up and I'm so glad you did. So th I appreciate, <laughs> yeah, I appreciate your persistence. All right. Well, thank you so much. And we'll chat again. We'll connect again soon. Thank and you thank so you. much, Dr. Bird. Thank you for getting this information out. You know, HSCT Warriors, we are an education-based nonprofit, and the whole point is to help promote awareness that this can be considered as a treatment for autoimmune diseases. More people need just need to know the facts so that they can make the best informed decision for their care. All right. Thank you. Take care, Dr. Burt. Talk soon. Okay, bye-bye. Be sure to visit hsctwarriorspodcast.org, where you can find notes from today's episode, submit ideas or feedback, and connect with resources and the HSCT Warriors Incorporated nonprofit. As always, special thanks to musical genius Billy Allitzhauser for sharing his superpowers to create, soundtrack, edit, and produce the audio to make this podcast possible. You can find us both when you subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find podcasts. 
It has been amazing to connect with warriors worldwide, and we would love to hear from you about how the podcast has helped your journey with autoimmune disease. Take a moment to connect with us on Instagram or share this episode with someone you know that would enjoy listening. In the meantime, we hope you'll tune in next Wednesday for another episode highlighting another HSCT warrior. Until then, be a snowflake and embrace your superpowers. Be kind. Be well. Jen Stansberry Koenig and the producers disclaim medical influence and responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. If you think you have a medical problem, please contact a licensed physician and take good care of it.